I believe that how we think about our OT profession has a significant impact on our daily practice. That's why I've been so eager to review this keynote address from the World Federation of Occupational Therapy Congress, which has been cited so many times since its 2019 publication that it has made our list of the 100 most cited OT journal articles. It's easy to see why this article is such a popular read. It explores some of the narrow ways of thinking that undergird our theory and practice, in particular, our focus on individualism. The author challenges us to see this problem clearly and calls upon us to leverage the strength of our diversity to build globally relevant occupational therapy. To talk about the practical implications of creating this type of change, we are excited to welcome to the podcast Vikram Pagpatan. EDD, OTRL, ATP, CLA, BCP, FA, OTA. He will help us unpack both what this means for our national associations, our local associations, and for your individual OT practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles. Then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of building a global OT profession, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain its CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT continuing education platform. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to identify instances where OT theory may be too narrow and limited to achieve our desired global impact. And our second learning objective is you will be able to recognize strategies to bring multiple perspectives into your services and your advocacy. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring Vikram on to discuss how this could play out in your practice. The article that we are reviewing today is called Building Globally Relevant Occupational Therapy from the Strength of Our Diversity. It comes to us from the World Federation of Occupational Therapists Bulletin. It was published online in 2019, and it ranks 63rd on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So a little bit about this address before we dive in. This keynote was delivered by Dr. Karen Wally Hamill, the most frequently featured author on our list of the top 100 OT articles. Each time we review a work of hers, I just feel myself being stretched and really have to sit with the concepts that she introduces. In this address, Dr. Hamill states that her goals are to, one, pinpoint some of the issues arising from the lack of diversity in our dominant theories and models, and two, explore some of the specific values embedded in our way of thinking about occupation, and three, suggest how things could be different and explain why those things must be different for OT to have a globally relevant impact. And she does give a, a note on terminology. Throughout the article, the author re references northern countries. This is not a geographically precise designation, but rather a label for high-income countries. These countries constitute less than 20% of the world's population, making them the global minority. Middle and low-income countries, sometimes called the global south, are home to 80% of the world's population and thus compromise the global majority. So from here, the author talks about the genesis of Northern OT theories and models. The ideas set forth in dominant occupational therapy theories and models did not fall from the heavens fully formed. Rather, they arose from specific experiences and perspectives of various individuals. Historically, ideas originating in the global north, particularly North America, Australasia, and Britain, have dominated OT theory. The lack of representation from the global south means that these theories have been based on partial insights. This becomes especially problematic when the resulting knowledge is presented as universally relevant, despite excluding the experiences, thoughts, and perspectives of the overwhelming world majority. 
And from here, she really dives into the problem of excluding multiple perspective from our theories. The author shares when theorists are primarily privileged members of a dominant population, it becomes far too easy for their ideas to go unchallenged. Their beliefs and assumptions are taken at face value without much critical examination by themselves or others. The author argues that this has indeed been the case in OT, and that one harmful ideology in particular has endured unchecked. And that is neoliberalism. So what is neoliberalism? Neoliberalism does not refer to liberal politics. And honestly, it's a complicated term to define. In our show notes, I'll link to just the Wikipedia article of this concept so you can read about its history. But the author of this paper summarizes it as follows. She says that neoliberalism positions the free market as the most efficient mechanism for organizing virtually all aspects of human life. Implementing a neoliberal agenda can mean cutting taxes, reducing government spending on health and social services, and slashing regulation for the benefit of private business. In short, this ideology puts profit over people. Neoliberalism also extols individualism, celebrating individual freedom and self-interest. It promotes independence and self-reliance, suggesting that people themselves are to blame for their own ill health and social problems. It advances productivism, which essentially means people are only worth what they produce. Thus, neoliberalism effectively erodes a sense of collective responsibility for the well-being of others. Critics of neoliberalism believe that this way of thinking has given way to an expanding gulf of inequality, including unequal access to opportunity and for people who are disabled or positioned at the bottom of the socioeconomic hierarchy, neoliberalism has increased the cost of services. So how has this ideology of neoliberalism come from the global north and influenced our OT values? The author shares that neoliberalism has left a discernible imprint on our values as OTs, but has rarely been named or challenged. The author argues that this neoliberal imprint can actually prompt us to act contrary to our code of ethics. For example, we might promote models of service delivery that allocate care based on a person's ability to pay rather than their need. We might develop self-management programs without challenging the underlying assumption that health results solely from individual behaviors. We might uphold ideologies that separate individuals from their environment and thus seek individualized solutions to problems caused by inequitable social structures. We also might prioritize occupations deemed as productive. We might adopt the client-centered language of consumerism to imply choice when in reality none exists. And we might reinforce the message that independence is admirable, aspirational, and universally valued, when in reality the majority of the global population assigns a higher value to interdependence. So that's neoliberalism in our values. How has neoliberalism imprinted our dominant models? One way the neoliberal focus on individualism and independence shows up in our models is through the division of all occupations into three categories. These are generally considered the activities of daily living slash self-care, two, work or productivity, and three, play or leisure. These categories focus on the self, and many critics have expressed concern that they are inapplicable across the human lifespan, simplistic, exclusionary, and value-laden. Another example of neoliberalism manifesting in OT ideologies is our assumption that people choose, shape, and orchestrate their everyday occupations, as if these choices are always made by individuals and not by couples, families, or communities. This is a uniquely privileged assumption that One, does not leave much room for other values, and two, ignores the reality that choice may be severely constrained by structural inequalities like poverty and racism. So that gives us an overview of the limited nature of some of our models and theories. But what will it take to build a more relevant and inclusive theoretical base? The article thus far has summarized why the author believes the OT community needs to harness the strength of diversity to build a more relevant and inclusive theoretical base. She offers several examples of how this could be accomplished, and it offers a couple broad categories. 
The first is triangulating our knowledge. Common in the social sciences, triangulation is a method for cross-checking data by gathering perspectives from multiple sources. As occupational therapy professionals, we could harness the strength of our diversity by triangulating our knowledge, i.e. consciously drawing from multiple perspectives. For example, we could triangulate Northern knowledge with Southern and Indigenous knowledge. Another broad category she explores is resisting colonialism. European colonialism has left its mark on 85% of the world. Our actions as OTs can advance colonialism by effectively exporting Northern ideals to the Southern majority without amendment and without consideration of their relevance. Occupational therapy interventions informed by irrelevant theories are more likely to create irrelevant, inappropriate, and oppressive experiences for our clients. Resisting colonialism begins with practicing cultural humility. And cultural humility is another broad category that she addresses for creating this globally relevant OT practice. Cultural humility requires us to develop a critical consciousness of our own assumptions, beliefs, values, and biases. To understand how our own perspectives may differ from other people's and to acknowledge the unearned advantages, privileges, and power that may derive from multiple dimensions of our social position. Ultimately, cultural humility helps us recognize that our profession's diversity offers strength from which to build. So bearing all this in mind, how can OT truly contribute to society? The occupational therapy profession has set a visionary mandate for ourselves. As stated by the World Federation of OT, Occupational therapy's contribution to the global health of society and individuals is by enabling the right to engage in meaningful, purposeful occupation, irrespective of medical diagnosis, social stigma, or prejudice. If we are to meet this mandate, we need to draw on the theoretical and practical wisdom from all of our diverse membership, not solely from those in the global north. We must employ theoretical models, assessments, interventions, and outcome measures that identify and address the inequitable structures that may constrain occupational rights, not solely of individuals, but of entire disadvantaged communities. Our national occupational therapy associations should be at the forefront of this important work. Furthermore, they should make a sustained effort to increase diversity within our own membership in accordance with the diversity of our nations. In conclusion, the author ends this address by sharing her hope and belief that the international OT profession can evolve to have a relevant and significant impact by building from the strength of our diversity and working to ensure that all people, regardless of difference, can engage in occupations that contribute to their own well-being and the well-being of their communities, as is their right. This was such a stirring address, and there were just so many implications for our national associations and local associations, but I really believe that there are a lot of implications for our individual practices as well. How we think about our global profession really influences how we practice OT. And to explore all of this, I am so thankful to welcome our guest to the podcast, Vikram Pagpatan. Vikram is an occupational therapist from New York City. He is of South Asian descent. He is Indian American and a first-generation university graduate. For him, establishing pathways and mechanisms of recruitment, mentorship, and retention in higher education, especially for students from disadvantaged and underrepresented communities, is a powerful passion. He currently practices as a full-time faculty member and admissions coordinator of the State University of New York Downstate Health Sciences University in the MSOT program in Brooklyn, New York. His clinical background is in adult and pediatric rehabilitation with a focus on assistive technology practice and acute care practice. Vikram is a strong believer in not allowing inequities of any form to stand in the way of positive, sustainable changes through powerful actions, and is honored to serve the occupational therapy community as an elected AOTA board member and as the newly elected president of the Association of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Occupational Therapy. So without further ado, I will patch Vikram into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Vic. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's great to be here. 
I am so thankful that you are here today to talk about this topic. I think that thinking of ourselves and our profession as being part of this global OT community sounds like a subtle shift, but it's so important to think of ourselves in that way and think about the global need of our skill set. And I'm so excited to just unpack what that means for us as individual practitioners today. Likewise. Yeah. Before we get into all of that, I want to hear a little bit about you and your story and specifically how you became like an OT advocate. I see you like all the time on social talking about occupational therapy and playing these roles in our profession. How did that come about? What motivated you to um, play that role? Sure, sure. Thank you, Sarah. And again, thank you for having me on this platform, Sarah. It's much appreciated. So when you talk about advocacy, it's, it's uh, unfortunately, Sarah, it, it feels like a buzzword nowadays, but in many cases, it, it, it's a story. It, it's a journey. And it's an experience that many of us do uh, experience, uh, but often we don't have the opportunities to actually change or implement actionable items. So from a cultural, spiritual, and a civic sense of duty, accountability and advocacy has always been ingrained into everything I do from a very young age, Sarah. I'm a proud member of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, and specifically of Indian and Punjabi descent. And these intersectionalities are powerful contributing factors for my own interest and, and sense of being a true advocate, not only for my own communities, but also the communities that affect our healthcare profession and that consume our healthcare profession. Actually, the greatest form of advocacy are often the small gains we make on an everyday basis as a part of our daily occupations, especially when we embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion as a mindset and not as a token. So for advocacy has always been a natural progression of steady and dedicated work in sustainable ways with great people. So some of the examples that I include um, that my own experiences of advocacy have started from being as a part of my SOTA, uh, which is a student, a student Occupational Therapy Association at my alma mater. Uh, and this invaluable experience has humbled me to understand the journey of leadership and the importance of teamwork in every nuanced way when it comes to higher education and developing into an occupational therapy professional. In addition, the advocacy work on, I do on a daily basis, especially on social media, highlights the importance of state membership and state engagement. So the importance of that, that type of endeavor is to really kind of open up the eyes to understand how accessible advocacy opportunities are at every level of what we do in our OTP community. And lastly, I'm humbled and privileged to be an elected AOTA board director. And that level of accountability and responsibility makes me a global OT ambassador. So everything that I do, I try to represent a model of advocacy that anyone can obtain and also implement as a part of their daily practice in OT. When I think about being an advocate, I think of it as something like so many of us aspire to, but the work of going above and beyond your 40-hour work week is such a barrier in my mind. Logistically, how do you balance that? Um, and what keeps you motivated to do this, I want to say, just work on top of work? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a great question, Sarah. And, uh, you know, as I said before, Sarah, uh, we often don't appreciate the small gains. So taking social media, for example, I, I think social media is a powerful tool. It, 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 back in my days, we had MySpace. And then before Facebook, we had other forms of networking, but not as accessible as, as um, reliable as they are now. So advocacy often does not have to be based on large gate. We talk about Lobby Day and Hill Day. We talk about the advocacy work we do within our SOTAs and COTAD associations and other specialty associations. That's great. But the advocacy that also happens from individual interactions, from inspirations and, and embracing the aspirations of others, uh, lending mentorship are, are all forms of advocacy that often don't take much time because they're natural interactions. So I think we have to take advocacy from a very grandiose perspective and make it much more manageable, especially as practitioners with actual responsibilities, as educators with full-time teaching loads, and especially as students who are looking to advocacy uh, as a means of implementing change in tangible ways, uh, not just change that you know might not be achievable 
with within practical measures. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about advocacy in that way as um, like small small steps or daily tasks that games, become yeah. cumulative over time. I think so often, like when I think of advocacy, it's like let's get this bill passed in the state of Nebraska, and I give up at the beginning. Like that, <laughs> like that does not sound like something I have time for. Oh, sure, um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> talking about the bill, talking to stakeholders about the bill talking to OTA and OT practitioners on how this bill could impact what they love to do as OTs. That itself is a form of advocacy because, again, it's it's ensuring that the conversation doesn't end. So I often do think about advocacy from a much more tangible way. And as you described, Sarah, it's it's intimidating. It, it can be quite daunting. But again, if we look at it from small, measurable gains, it, it, it's just, again, small baby steps from a developmental perspective. Of course, we have to do OT stuff, right? a small developmental perspective to larger gains. This article called us towards a specific form of advocacy, this building a globally relevant OT profession from the strength of our diversity. This stirred so many just like thoughts and questions in my mind as I read the article. It was very dense. I had to like look up words as I was reading it. Um, but the more I dug in, the more fruitful I thought the ideas were. Um, and we're going to get to some specific parts of it. But I wanted to start with just your general impressions of the article um, as you read it. Thank you, sir. Yeah. And, and by the way, great selection. I mean, uh, a really, a really uh, powerful read. Um, it was really truly captivating because it made me self-reflect at almost at the end of every paragraph. <laughs> so at the end of the paragraph, I had to pause, take a minute, and just kind of digest and synthesize. Otherwise, I would have, I would have, I would have uh, skipped something or, or 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 scanned something that I should have really reflected upon. So to me, it was captivating. It 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 forced me to reflect. It forced me to understand and kind of think about the way that we we truly examine how practice is influenced by the environment and how the environment then influences what we perceive as barriers, as facilitators, and also what are societal norms for health and wellness. I mean, the, this article went almost in a roller coaster perspective that looked at how we often do have to think about uh, uh, variables outside of our comfort zone. And that really truly embraces that global perspective that this article really kind of touched upon, which then looked at the triangulation of knowledge. Now, again, I, I kind of look at it from a semantic perspective. I, I really feel like as OTAs and OTs, we do this on an everyday basis where we have to synthesize perspectives, knowledge, and sources of information from multiple sources, from multiple perspectives. Uh, it, it truly just, it really talks about the idea of an occupational profile that is truly centered on the human and not just a diagnosis. So as I kind of dug a little bit deeper, um, Sarah, I, I, I took a few notes and, and this is what came to me naturally from, from reading it twice because I had to read it twice. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of those articles you have to read twice. So it, it, it talked about placing a high message or a high importance on the multiple forms of reference when looking at occupational therapy practice. It, it talked about the idea of cultural humility, but embracing cultural humility more as a form of process versus a forced way of thinking or a forced ideology. Uh, and then often when you talk about cultural humility, you have to talk about biases. So a, a quick example of this is that thinking about globally centered occupational therapy practice, expanding the notions of occupations and ADLs. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but I did an article uh, called Cultural Articles of Faith. And the premise, I didn't realize it now, but after reading this article, I realized it's closely aligned. But the premise is, how do we expand our scope of practice by embracing ADLs from the vantage point of the consumer? So for example, cultural garments like a turban or something that I might wear on my body, is that an extension of upper body dressing? My preferences in the way that I eat, in my preferences at the times that I eat or where or how I choose to eat, eat kinematically, meaning on the floor, at the table, with or without utensils. That expands our scope of practice for self-feeding, which in this case, in, in this article, is a triangulation of knowledge that, that looks at one aspect of performance from multiple vantage points. So it, it truly is an inspirational piece that looks at sustaining our profession by expanding our scope of practice. So I truly appreciated her work in this article. Yeah, it felt so timely 
to me, even though it came out um, a couple of years ago. And um, I see how this, this paper has influenced papers that we've read since. Yeah. Yeah, it, it feels like I had been mi- missing a piece of the puzzle almost. Like we've done an episode on beyond individualism and you see how it would have connected to this paper. Yeah, it felt like a missing piece for us um, yeah. in what we've covered on the podcast. Yeah, it's, it's the first domino piece of many of many uh, that have directly and, and indirectly have been influenced greatly by this article. Yeah. I think the temptation as we read this title... Uh, and maybe even read the whole paper, is to uh, think that it's all the work of our national associations or some people out there with uh, higher paychecks than us. But she talked about our work on an individual level, too, um, and how we can build a globally relevant OT practice like just in our own community with the people that we're serving. And I want to ask a couple questions about that and begin with her call to expand our understanding of um, daily occupations and specifically how we like center individualistic ADLs here in the United States. How did all that hit you and resonate with you? Sure, sure. When, when we talk about value, right, Sarah, I, I think um, we have to take a pause and first understand where value stems from. Uh, we want to say it stems from us, right? I, I value this or I value your health promotion in this area. I, I value you losing weight so you don't gain secondary or acquire secondary comorbidities and so forth and so forth. Again, value has to stem from the individual, not from us as providers. So that's the very first priority, and, and, and just kind of taking a pause and grounding ourselves to understand that value can be biased if it's from our vantage point. It has to be from the consumer or from from the individual themselves. So in many cases in practice, and I'm sure you know this, Sarah, but often value is based upon rehab outcomes that are, are, are matched upon productivity or KPIs or performance indicators, correlating goals with length of stay, or ensuring that individuals meet the prioritized ADLs in preparation for transitions, discharge, or community reintegration. So from a very rehab healthcare perspective or habilitated perspective, we're often trying to enforce value based upon the structures that, that we're operating under, in this case, our healthcare system. These components influence how we prioritize value and ADLs from an institutional or systematic level, but they don't value the person. So again, the, the idea of how occupations and ADLs originate from the person's perspective, from the human's perspective, not from our own perspective as, as uh, providers. So I believe we first have to start with understanding how important cultural humility is by first asking questions. I don't think we do this enough, Sarah, and I've come to realize from my multiple interactions that we often have this sense of reserve, reservedness, right? We we want to ask questions, but we don't want to offend. We want to ask questions, but we don't want to come off intrusive. At the same time, we need knowledge. We need information. So we have to ask the questions that sometimes may be uncomfortable to ask, but they are for the benefit of the therapeutic outcome or the therapeutic process. In, in, in other perspectives, they truly build rapport and trust. So to really understand ADLs and IADLs and occupations, we have to inherently understand where the individual prioritizes their health and wellness. Um, where in the sense of meaning, are they a parent where they have to take care of their children first before they can take care of themselves? In that example, Sarah, which has come across in many of my cases in pediatrics, there are individuals prioritize the health and well-being or the ADLs and occupations of others before themselves. Fine, that's their inherent value, which I must respect as a healthcare provider. I can't force my own value right on, onto them. So again, it's 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 cultural humility in practice, taking a step back, pausing, and reflecting that this has to be the process that's spearheaded by the consumer and the client, not by the provider. I love what you're saying about beginning with these open-ended questions. I think about early in my career, I quickly got into this routine where I would like barge into the room introduce myself, kind of had a script, and then would like lead us through this process. And now as I 
I reflect on that a lot to be like, I think I was mirroring what I thought doctors do. Like I was trying to like give myself authority as I walked in, um, but really was coming from probably a place of insecurity because as I talk to really good OTs um, from all over, they all begin their sessions with open-ended questions. And that takes such confidence and like courage um, to hand the session over to the patient in that way, because then you're setting yourself up to be a facilitator. Yeah. A facilitator. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's, yeah. yeah, you lose the facade of like the medical expert. Right. Correct. Which is, which, which Sarah, I've, I, I, I know this for a fact as, as, as a, as some, someone has benefited from, from healthcare models that are more social based versus more medical based. It is refreshing to just have a normal conversation about my own healthcare goals and needs yeah. with a provider versus being told this, mm -hmm. this, and that must be done. It, it is utterly refreshing. And again, it speaks this article about understanding the triangulation of knowledge from multiple perspectives, one of them being the consumer, right? Not, not, not ourselves. Yeah. I wanted to dig a little bit more into how she set up this idea of cultural humility sure. as a tool that we can be using. Um, what did you take away from that section? Oh, sure. And, and that was powerful, Sarah. I, it, I think um, that that section could have used another 10 pages easily, yeah. <laughs> especially nowadays. So again, it, the, the beautiful thing is that the, these, words are, these words were spoken and written uh, uh, years before, right? A lot of the, the societal and um, geopolitical and, and environmental instances that have happened so far. So like everything else in occupational therapy, Sarah, I, I think cultural humility is meant to be practiced, not mastered. Yeah, there's no such thing as a, as a final competency in cultural humility. It, it truly is a lifelong process in and outside of occupational therapy. So I've personally gained a deeper appreciation of the complexity of how little we know of each other in regards to the perceptions of occupations and the importance of developing those critical skills and, and critical thinking skills that truly understand the craft of what we do from the lens of the consumer and the client not based upon our own biases and judgment. So a quick example, um, Sarah, when it comes to culture humility, is to kind of take a step back and and not just empathize, because I think I think the word, I think the term empathy kind of gets stretched out for multiple interpretations, but culture humility is to kind of understand that if you're going to be inclusive, you're going to be inclusive of vantage points and perspectives that may not align to your own. So it's being comfortable with differing opinions. It's it's being comfortable with, with having your own ideologies or perceptions attacked or ridiculed or belittled. Because if we're comfortable in that space, then we're truly embracing cultural humility. Because if I'm not comfortable in that space, Sarah, then I'm going to resist. I'm going to be conflicted. Uh, and I'm going to let my own biases take over the therapeutic process. So I, I think as OTPs, we're so strategically positioned to be the most sincerest form of habilitative and rehabilitative healthcare services compared to the truly the purest medical model, which basically means you did this, this, and that, and this is why you're here, versus we're here now. Now let's get you back to where you want to be. So I think that is beyond utterly refreshing to kind of hear that perspective from our profession not from right. Um, as most other professions practice the, the the latter, right? which is fixing fixing the person. We're not always meant to fix the person, in my opinion, Sarah. I, I think we're often meant to meet them where they are, and that and that's important. Yeah, and I that I love the feeling of like being curious about someone or something, and when I'm feeling like a difference is threatening or if someone is like upset at me um, to try to shift my brain into that curiosity sure. mode. Like I literally like visualize like my thoughts coming to my prefrontal cortex and like trying to like, <laughs> like spark curiosity yeah. when those feelings are coming up. And I think yeah, cultural humility is so tied to our level of curiosity and trying to shift in that mode. And it's an enjoyable mode to be in, to be oh, curious. For sure. For sure. For it's, sure. It's, 
it's uncomfortable. It's 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 curiosity driven, but it but it has fruitful gains. Uh, again, you, you start to kind of really appreciate how important report and trust is in the therapeutic process when you embrace culture humility. It's something as simple as uh, taking the time to pronounce someone's name or asking for their pronunciation or preferred pronunciation. Uh, a, a little step like that goes a long way to kind of truly understand. Hey, I'm 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 going to meet you halfway. I, I don't know something, but uh, let's learn it together, right? L- let's figure this out together. Yeah. I think it's critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I think OTs have like, we have strengths in that area for yeah. sure. And if it's something that we could lean into as a profession, I right. just see that being so powerful. Thinking of the individual practitioner, I wanted to bring in the idea of um, triangulating our knowledge. I loved that concept. I don't know why it hit me so powerfully. Like, I love anything that has three things. I think, to me, three things feels, like, very powerful and whole, but also very achievable. Um, And it's such a checklist to be like, do I have three perspectives here? Right. And you can totally see with your individual clients, do I have myself, the patient, and the caregiver, or whatever the three most important perspectives are. Did that section hit you as powerfully? I just loved yeah. it. I've been thinking about it constantly. No, it was, it, was a very, um, it was a very uh, consumable way to understand where I, I believe the origins of a lot of our theoretical frames of reference and, and models are, are coming from the, the, the three-tier aspect. Even thinking about person, environment, occupation, correct? The, the PEO hallmark of, of our profession often is considered the PEO model. So to, to me, it when I read it and I digested it and I reflected upon it, it it also sounded to me a little bit like checks and balances, Sarah. <clears throat> so the, the, what I mean by the checks and balances is the way we practice. Um, it, it's it's critical as a healthcare profession and as a in, in a in a current healthcare system, which is quite dynamic, that we take every single measure to understand where our clients have been, where they are, and where they want to be. So again, to to your point, three tier system. It's not just one question. It has to be three questions based upon the same topic. So it, it starts with kind of looking at the occupation profile. And I talk to my students uh, a lot about this, Sarah, and, and it comes off a little cliche where we talk about how critical it is at, at the start of an interaction with anyone to build an occupation profile. But I think that's it's a little bit different now. I think it's a constant, ongoing process. It, the, the idea of an occupation profile is that that story changes in every single page, every single chapter. Every single day that you interact with a client, their occupational profile changes. It's not a static system. So the the idea of, again, triangulation is that all of a sudden the perspectives, barriers, facilitators, external mechanisms of control change every single time you treat and evaluate any client. So, so there is no templated way to practice occupational therapy. And what I often say from my own perspective, there is no cookie cutter way to practice occupational therapy. It needs to truly be from multiple angles of, of looking at a problem, looking at how the problem is perceived by the consumer or client, and then collaboratively figuring out a solution to that problem. If you don't have those three checks, in, in, there is no balance right, to the outcomes of occupational therapy. I hope OTs um, are just drawing triangles as much as I am always being like, yeah, are three, do I need three different assessment types or three different perspectives? Maybe the environments, like thinking about the environment, that can be one of your perspectives that you're yeah. thinking about. It's yeah. a very, no, I, I, very I, satisfying I, process. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I recently did, a, I, have an, I have an AT evaluation from a firm that basically uh, uh, looks at AT evaluations from a community perspective. So it's technology integration for academic, but also from for community resources. So how families use technologies to support their children's academic performance, but at the same time of uh, managing Amazon, managing Grubhub, managing ways to access more healthier choices using or leveraging technology. And and, and when you said that, it, it, it forces uh, us to say, well, technology, are, is there a hardware requirement? Is there a learning requirement? Am I just assuming that everyone knows how to use smart technologies nowadays? Because if I do, that's a bias. So even technology literacy, right? And not all families know how to navigate the complexities of online shopping. 
So I, I don't want to take that bias and feel that into my therapeutic process. So that 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 triangulation, I have to take a quick pause and say, do I need to address technology literacy first before I address technology use, if that makes sense? And again, it only makes us better practitioners because we're forcing ourselves to commit to checks and balances. I think it's critical. It, it's almost like a quality it's a quality improvement process, right? It's, it's beautiful. Yep. I love it. Yeah, it's a process we can always be doing on ourselves and gives us words for what we're already doing, I think. Correct. Um, which Correct. is very powerful. That gives me uh, a good sense of that individual level and just some of yep. the practical things that we can be doing. The article spent quite a bit of time talking about like our national level. I won't get to the national and global level, but start with the national level. There was a really specific call towards the end um, that our national associations need to reflect the diversity of where they're representing. How do we ensure that? How do we get there? Um, what were your thoughts on that call? Sure, sure. Um, it's so much to say on this one. I'll, I'll keep it short. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, look, I, I'll, I'll say it this way. It, it's, it's by supporting, by uplifting, and by advocating for our workforce every level. We we often think about the diversity of our membership, the diversity of our workforce, starting sometimes at the end. How do we look now, Sarah? Do, do we look, quote unquote, diverse? Then one has, as we did for this article, well, what are some of the definitions of these terminologies? What does diverse mean? And does diversity technically change almost on a systematic way on an annual basis? Because diversity is, is, is many things, and often it's just perceived as something that you can view. But it's often the things that you can't see that 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 embraces or highlights our true diversity, and that's a diversity of experience. So you can't see my experiences, Sarah, but I can tell you about my experiences, which then adds to your culture humility. Correct. So it, it's like a three hundred and sixty process, nonetheless. Not to make it sound confusing. So from a from a, these these are my perspectives. So from a academic perspective, we need to continue to adapt innovative admission strategies that seek to recruit retain is the critical component not only to not only to just get but to keep and support applicants from diverse communities and especially non-traditional students as a person who practices in academia as an admissions coordinator from from a, for a large state public university retention is extremely more important than just recruitment uh, often recruitment might seem like a checklist oh got this have this have that but retaining and supporting is a true work in, in looking at the first step for diversifying the workforce. And again, diversifying the workforce with a diversity of experience. So I've have, I have a plethora of students and alums, Sarah, that are coming for, to OT as your second and sometimes third career, uh, career choice. Or I have students that are coming to OT much later than traditional students post-undergraduate or, or so forth. So to me, that adds in a wealth of experience to the cohorts and then eventually to practice. So that's one aspect. From a clinical perspective, I think it's critical that we look at diversity from every level of tangible outcomes. So from the clinical perspective, it's ensuring that we practice in a way that matches what we've experienced in academia, but is still practical in practice. So, so what does that mean? The occupational profile, once again, Sarah, I think is a, is, a, is a tremendous tool or a mindset, but we often have to look at it from just simple conversations. Sarah, if I get to know something about you today, I'm going to try my very best to retain it and apply it to our next, our next therapeutic communication or our next interaction. And to me, that's taking the occupation profile and making it tangible. So from, the, from a clinical perspective, the diversity of our skill sets, the diversity of what we do to impact consumer lives, that also adds to, to the diversity of our workforce because it just makes us much more unique as healthcare providers. And then lastly, Sarah, from a leadership perspective, I often say this, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring your own seat and let's make a table. So wait, why do we need to wait for the, you know, for you to pull up a seat? And if and often, if there's not enough, not enough tables, then we're doing something wrong in leadership and in association management. So the idea is, is that every single person deserves to have a stake at policy change, policy production, and also understanding how policies impact those that truly, you know, impact the, 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 or truly drive the occupational therapy profession forward, and that are students, practitioners, academicians, and researchers. 
So the, the notion here is that membership diversity must include the perspectives of everyone. So there has to be 100% buy-in. So if, if, uh, if there's an aspect that we are not sure of when it comes to a decision, in, in, in this case, in any example of membership uh, management, I truly think having enough buy-in from the true stakeholders of any set topic is, is going to create a much more fruitful outcome, uh, again, to, to correlate to the diversity of membership. Right, because again, it's taking your experiences and saying they are valuable, they are needed, but you have to come to the table. If, does that make sense? Or it, it's almost like a, I get too passionate when I think about this. But again, I often think about it doesn't really matter how far the table is; just pull up your seat, and we'll get to the table. I love that. There's so much to think about on the three levels that you just mentioned. I mean, they're all conversations in their own right, for sure. Yeah. But when I think about a seat at the table, like in the context of this conversation and triangulating our knowledge, there's so many ways to communicate and get involved. Right. Now, I think that's different even when this paper was written. Right. The Our communication tools have just... Um, Expanded, expanded so rapidly yeah. yeah and for us as a profession to figure out how to harness that how to use that productively yeah feels like the challenge of this moment in time correct and what what's the ot association's role in that and what's my role as an individual like there's all these different ways i can engage What's the tiny stuff I can be making each day that lends the most value? Um, yeah. yeah, that's a lot to yeah. um, process and take in. And it's different than it was five or 10 years ago, too. We're not, we're rewrite or yeah, we're writing a new story for Every sure. single year, Sarah. So it, it's almost like we're, we're strategically positioned to leverage the access and the privilege we have to inspire others to make those gains just as we're making those small gains it, it just it just comes down to one voice and inspiring many right or, or one model inspiring many and yeah. then a change becomes you know from grassroots to to sh structure breaking right or or structure rebuilding in, in many cases it's almost like our ot associations are needing to reflect this change in practice we just talked about on the individual level like it's not a top-down world anymore. We need our associations to play the role of facilitator, right. um, not to like be like conversations only happen here because they don't. Like no, they don't. We need We need a facilitator more than we need that like top-down expert that I tried to play early in my career. And it's hard to make that shift as an individual, and it's sure. hard to make that shift as it is hard a group for sure. Yes. It's yeah. a new skill set. Yeah, it's it it's it's a un it's a it's an unmapped uh, place that I feel we we often are we are educated on, but we're often we're looking for we're looking for always to have those favorable gains, those positive outcomes. But we we often have to realize we can't always lead uh, the path to those gains. We we often have to take shotgun, right? We have to take a, a, a side seat and just realize. We have to facilitate those gains from a natural process, a natural way of kind of looking at things. It can't be forced, Sarah. And I and I and I, I share your uh, your hardship as well. Early on, as a, as a clinician, I, I wanted to gain the most forms of of positive indicators of performance, of positive indicators of outcomes. Hey, I got another thirty degrees of shoulder flexion. Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, another A plus. Yeah. Yeah. You went down from seven to a two after a thirty minute session, or, or now. This individual is able to recall multiple forms of education that I told them three weeks ago. So I feel like they really were listening to me, Sarah. But at the same point, I have to realize it's a uh, OT ends at a certain point. It's we're not finite when it comes to the healthcare process. So what we do is we need to equip individuals to be facilitators of their own recovery, their own outcomes. And on an advocacy level, we need to ensure that other individuals have the tools and resources to make those steady changes on their own irrespective of our presence. So I think that's powerful. Eric. Yeah. We're touching on this a little bit, but I want to ask it explicitly, um, ex explicitly at the national level, 
what does it look like to triangulate our knowledge? The paper talked about that. And I see how we need that diverse membership so we can begin that process. But what does that look like logistically um, in today's world? Sure, sure. From a national perspective, Sarah, I, I think I think the vision is much more important than the person. And when I say that the person, I mean an individual, correct? So the the, the vision has multiple, multiple forms or tiers of individuals that contribute to a shared goal or a collaborative process. Often, it's correlated that a vision is based upon an individual's vision, right? Or an, an individual's plan and so forth. That is 100% false. I think the vision is culture. So I think when, when there is vision that matches the culture, what everyone is equipped, motivated, and inspired to do together, that creates a culture shift because the vision matches the culture, if, if that makes sense. So in my, in my own lived experiences and in my own knowledge, I think it's important to ensure that we are equipped with the resources and tools to better serve those that need us, Sarah, uh, the recipients of our occupational therapy knowledge, the lobbyists that need the supports of our resources and research to, to expand our scope of practice. Uh, the state associations are critical in ensuring that, they're, that they feel supported to look at advocacy from the city, neighborhood, county, state, and local um, uh, providence perspective. So it, it's almost like a, from a national perspective, it's not top down. It's actually bottoms up if you think about it. And, and that's my vision for leadership. It needs to be bottoms up. It, if, we don't, if we don't have a shared vision that contributes to the shared goals, which by the way, across the OT communities from the state to specialty associations to national associations, there's often one goal. It's to advance what we do to do better for others, right? That which matches our code of ethics. And truly, that's what it is. That 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 is what we're advocating for to be better versions of ourselves tomorrow and for the future, so that others can reap the benefits of our work. Others meaning clients, patients, consumers, communities, systems, and so forth. So I think that's that's the that's the vision moving forward, from the bottom up, right? From the state levels to the specialty levels from students and SODAs and, and student associations to feeling empowered as developing leaders to fieldwork students taking that extra step in their fieldwork journeys to capstone uh, students expanding our, our perceptions of OT in the community and expanding our scope of practice and then eventually to the state and national levels. I just think there's so many opportunities for, for that vision to be actualized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that goes back to why I just love this triangle yeah. like structure and image too, where maybe even parts of that vision seem really different, but they're all needed in the whole. Um, all somehow, somehow yeah. these different perspectives create one whole, like that's right. such a beautiful Right. It's image. all threaded to the same outcome, Sarah. Yeah. It's, it, it's to be better versions of ourselves. She, in the article, to me asked a really challenging question which is how can our associations be a part of addressing inequitable structures? That to me is different than just thinking about our individual OT practice. Um, But as individuals, that's the problem that we hit when we're just thinking of ourselves is lots of our structures are inequitable. Right. And so that is a unique and special and needed role of our associations. But what does that look like? Um, yeah, yeah. You- <laughs> I, I'm going to take a shot at it. Sarah, that's a hard question, but I yeah. think from a from an association level, including both state and national, I, I think they're often um, they they need to be looked at as facilitators that equip all of us, from students to practitioners to entrepreneurs to academicians, with the resources and tools and knowledge that they need to break down these structures. But not only break down the structures, Sarah, rebuild them. You, you can't break something down because it doesn't work, but then not have a solution for its its revitalization, right? To, to actually become a supporter of what you have to do. So we can't just break down barriers. We have to offer solutions. Uh, as lobbyists, we have to ensure that they are, uh, are advocating at every level uh, on what we do, why we do that, why we do the work, and also how our work could be much more better supported from the state and federal level. So I, I've, I've come to realize that lobbyists are are critical gatekeepers 
in not only sustaining and protecting our scope of practice, but expanding our scope of practice. And, and again, from the state association level to the national association level, lobbyists are critical. So I think sharing those resources, sharing that data, and often sharing our, our knowledge is going to be critical in ensuring that we're practicing the, the most purest form of occupational therapy, which again, even with the structures that are, are creating inequities, we can provide solutions for equitable practice across the board. So again, I think it's looking at a, a transparency in, in almost a lateral fashion, right? Just, just sharing of all the resources to ensure that these, these structures are not prohibiting what we do. But, but rather, they're there, we've acknowledged them, but we have, we have backdoors and solutions to work, you know, uh, uh, to pivot away from them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We've talked now about the individual level and the national level, and I feel honestly like that's where we spend 99% of our energy yeah. is at these two levels. And then thinking about the global level, honestly, to me, has felt like a historical afterthought. Like, I don't think many, (laughs) not enough of us are thinking about that. But as we've talked about, it's a new world, new communication structures, new expectations. Um, What are the opportunities out there for for global collaboration in OT? Sure. Sarah, I think it starts with having strategic partnerships and, and what I mean by that is that these partnerships in any form with any organizations that have shared similar values to our own, they have to be with, with entities or associations or even individuals that often are looking at the same outcomes as we are as a healthcare profession. Um, but these strategic partnerships from a global perspective, Sarah, what they must do is that they must equip us with tangible tools, knowledge, resources to do a better job. I think uh, any partnership must be, you know, highly beneficial to those that are involved in it as a stakeholder. So, as from an association level, I think it's critical to ensure that we're providing members and non-members with with as many tools as possible from a global perspective to easily adopt cultural humility, to easily adopt the triangulation of knowledge theory when it comes to uh, checks and balances of of daily practice, but also to advocate for the same exact um, uh, uh, sources of, of, of equities that we're looking for from a global perspective. So what I've come to realize, Sarah, from, from a, a level of research, not only from social media, but also from scholarly journals, is that, again, we're all fighting and we're all advocating for the same thing, is to be better versions of ourselves. And I, I've said this before, and I do apologize for repeating myself, but I think it's an important message. I think if we're better versions of ourselves and we equip ourselves as facilitators with a, a plethora of knowledge and tools, even from global partnerships, uh, often, again, who, who's benefiting from, from us as, as the, the best versions of ourselves as OTPs? Clients, patients, uh, parents, consumers, spouses, caregivers. Uh, and from the micro and macro level, anyone that is a benefit or as a benefactor or a consumer or stakeholder of OT. So again, these partnerships need to provide us with tangible tools. I think that is critical from a global perspective. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about this when I was reading the article, but I was thinking about as you were saying this, thinking about collaborating with the lifestyle medicine movement, which is this big global movement where there's this potential close right. partnership. I've been thinking a lot lately about translation, and she called this out so specifically in the article. I read English papers, but we're headed into a new world of translation technology. And I'm so excited for us to be intentional about just taking a knowledge that came from different languages than ours. I just get so excited when I think about the possibilities in the next five to 10 years for us. Um, But I think it will take intentionality and strategy. um, Correct. Partnerships. It'll, It'll take humility. It'll take a humility of learning. Yeah, yeah, many things. This article pushed us a lot in the right way, was critical of um, some of the places we've been, but she definitely ended with this message of hope, this hope of building this globally relevant OT profession from the strength of our diversity 
I'm curious how that final call hit you and what gives you hope today. Um, there's a lot of challenges out there um, that we experience at all three of these levels. And like I said at the beginning, it can feel like work upon work, mountains beyond mountains. And looking at, out at those mountains beyond mountains, what gives you hope? Yeah, it's it's uh, it was a powerful sentiment shared at the end, Sarah, and, and I think it was a great way to end a, a very um, deep dive into reflection, especially of looking at ways and looking at things that we often are exposed to from a different angle. So, so Sarah, I, I I've had the privilege to speak and engage with multiple students, academicians, practitioners, and stakeholders from multiple nations, uh, states, institutions, and communities. And I continue to learn this one aspect over and over again that I realize it's that we're accountable for our own actions and we're, and we're responsible as healthcare providers uh, by our code of ethics to ensure that we're doing the very best to our capabilities. And one thing that's threaded across the board is passion. So irrespective of the language, irrespective of the culture, you know, Sarah, I, as, a, as, a, as an admissions coordinator, I do multiple interviews on, on an annual basis. And one thread that comes across from every response from almost every applicant is that I, I have a passion to help others. And this has not changed in our profession. And I'm so fortunate to be a part of a profession that is centered on ensuring that we do well by others, not only ethically, but also professionally and morally. So I, I think I am hopeful that we will continue to have that passion drive us forward. Uh, irrespective of whatever changes contextually, Sarah, irrespective of healthcare reform, policy, healthcare systems, inequities and barriers, I think we'll find a solution. Because again, what we are truly to our bones, Sarah, all of us across the board from from the US to other nations uh, globally, is we're solution driven. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll find a way. And again, what fuels that? Our passion. Hmm. I talked to an OT the other day that said that OT is a universal language. And I thought yeah. about that a lot because you there, I can't even yeah. put my finger on what exactly that means, but I really <laughs> yeah. connected with it. And maybe it is that passion. And I think we're, you can look at the OT landscape and like every other uh, profession and organization, like some of our, like what used to be benchmarks of passion, like membership levels, like everything are on the decline. But as we're talking today, I think in the shifting world that challenges me to be like, maybe we're not looking in the right places and maybe like the passion is still there because there's, I see all the conversations, I see the passion. Yeah. Um, it's just and, it's a, and it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's a good thing to be headed in this new into this right. new reality. Like I do think we're growing and improving. Correct. Um, Correct. So. We're just amplifying the way that we express passion in different ways. And I think it's a beautiful notion to kind of evolve our profession. Also evolve the way that we advocate. As you said, Sarah, before, advocacy does not have to be intimidating. Small gains can lead to immeasurable outcomes that, that are favorable for all. And I truly believe that, again, as long as we have passion across the board, you know, the, this article talked about hope, and I'm truly hopeful that, that our passion will never be, be extinguished across the board. And, and you're right. It, it's a universal language that we share across, across the globe as OTs. Well, Vic, this has been such a meaningful conversation. I'm so thankful it's our first podcast of 2024. I feel like it sets the stage um, for our discussions on this podcast. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being here to share your experience and also your hope for our profession. Thank you so much, Sarah. I, again, and thank you for being a true advocate, Sarah. The, the, this, this topic is timely. Your, the selection of the article is paramount. Uh, and again, thank you for the opportunity to, to again, have this other, another platform to advocate for what we do as OTPs. Well, thank you, Vic. Thank you, Sarah. Wow, you all, this article and discussion has really changed the way I think about occupational therapy, especially the ideas of triangulating our knowledge and the potential that new technology now holds for crossing traditional language barriers to really build a globally strong OT profession. 
And as always, I really want to hear what your thoughts are from this discussion. If you are a casual listener of the podcast, please let us know your thoughts by giving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to. You can also comment on our YouTube video. But the best place to really discuss the implications of this is in the OT Potential Club. We'll have all of the mentioned resources organized there for you, and I'll be watching for your comments in our forum. If you are interested in earning a CEU certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is to head into the OT Potential Club. And on our course page in there, you can take a five question test. And when you pass, we will generate a certificate for your time today. And as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps keep you informed and inspired as an OT professional. Take care and we'll talk next time.